for those of you who don't, don't, don't know me, um, my name is Philip Buckholz. I'm a, uh, I have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a cancer gene jock. Uh, basically, I do cancer genomics research at the University of South Carolina. And what that means is that I'm kind of an expert on all the ways that the human genome can get futzed with during your lifetime and which of those things cause cancer and which ones don't. Okay. Um, so technically, that means that I'm very, very skilled in, in the art of DNA sequencing. Okay, I can figure out the sequence of things that I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, and I'm also pretty good, when I say I, I mean the people in my laboratory, uh, you're not gonna hear their names, but there's a group of people that do this excellent work. Um, we're really good at, at um, detecting foreign pieces of DNA in places where they're not supposed to be, even if they're real low levels. And we use those skills during the pandemic um, to, we invented the COVID test that Many of you did a spit test. Okay, that came out of my lab because we were really good at that kind of stuff. And so I've earned a fair amount of respect um, in the state of South Carolina and in this body because we did a ton of COVID testing in the middle of the night when people were afraid and we told them, no, you don't have COVID in your home or yes, you do. So my qualifications to comment on this are both technical and kind of relational in the state of South Carolina. Um, I'll cut to a very narrow theme here, but it does touch on lots of these regulatory issues, and I'll leave it to you to expand on those if you want to. I'll try to stay in this narrow lane um, of some problems in the Pfizer vaccine um, as a case study for places in which regulatory oversight could be improved. All right, so. First of all, let me say that my interpretation of the literature is that the Pfizer vaccine did a pretty good job of keeping people from dying, but it did a terrible job of stopping the pandemic. The early publications showed that um, it stopped infection, but that only lasted for like a month. Dr. Burkhardt, could yes. you pull the mic a little closer to you? Um, staff's telling me they're having trouble getting you on the recording. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, in, in my professional evaluation of the literature, the Pfizer vaccine did a pretty good job of keeping people out of the cemetery, but it sucked at stopping the pandemic. And um, it was the best of sucky options that we had. And I still believe that um, it was deployed mostly in good faith, but there were a lot of shortcuts taken because the house was on fire and uh, we could do a better job next time from the lessons that we're gonna learn here. That's my own personal view of this, uh, but I'm also, my philosophical bent here is, I'm sure many of you have heard of Occam's razor, right? Choose the simplest of explanations. Well, there's another one called Hanlon's razor, which is never attribute malice to that which can be better explained by incompetence. And so I'm trying to be gracious here in many in circumstances. There could be malice underneath, but I'm trying to see just incompetence to be gracious, so. The Pfizer uh, vaccine is contaminated with plasma DNA. It's not just mRNA. It's got bits of DNA in it. This DNA is the DNA vector that was used um, as the template for the in vitro transcription reaction when they made the mRNA. Um, I know this is true because I sequenced it in my own lab. The vials of Pfizer vaccine that were given out here in Columbia, uh, one of my colleagues was in charge of that vaccination program in the College of Pharmacy, and for reasons that I still don't understand, he kept every single vial. 
Um, so he had a whole freezer full of the empty vials. Well, the empty vials have a little tiny bit in the, in the bottom of them. He gave them all to me, and I looked at them. We had two batches that were given out here in Columbia, and I checked these two batches, and I checked them by sequencing. And I sequenced all the DNA that was in the vaccine, and I can see what's in there. And it's surprising that there's any DNA in there, and you can kind of work out what it is and how it got there, and I'm kind of alarmed about the possible consequences of this, both in terms of human health and biology, but you should be alarmed about the regulatory process that allowed it to get there. So this DNA, in my view, it could be causing some of the rare but serious side effects like death from cardiac arrest. There's a lot of cases now um, of people having suspicious death after vaccine. It's hard to prove what caused it. It's just, you know, temporally associated. Um, and this DNA is a plausible mechanism, okay? Uh, this DNA uh, can and likely will integrate into the genomic DNA of cells that got transfected with the vaccine mix. This is just the way it works. We do this in the lab all the time. We take pieces of DNA, we mix them up with a, a lipid complex like the Pfizer uh, vaccine is in. We pour it onto cells and, and a lot of it gets into the cells and a lot of it gets into the DNA of those cells and it becomes a permanent fixture of the cell. It's not just a temporary, um, a temporary thing. It is in that cell and all of its progeny from now on forevermore, amen. So that's why I'm kind of alarmed about this DNA being in the vaccine, it's, it's, it's different from RNA because it can be permanent. This is a real hazard for genome modification of long-lived somatic cells, like stem cells, um, and it could cause, theoretically, this is all a theoretical concern, but it's pretty reasonable based on solid molecular biology, that it could cause a sustained autoimmune tact toward that tissue. It's also a very real theoretical risk of future cancer in some people, depending on where in the genome this foreign piece of DNA lands, um, it can interrupt a tumor suppressor or activate an oncogene. I think it'll be rare, but I think the risk is not zero, and it may be high enough that we are to figure out if this is happening or not. And again, the, the, the autoimmunity thing is not my wheelhouse. I'm not an immunologist, but the cancer risk is. That's my bag. I know this is a thing, and it is a possibility. Okay, a, a little nerdy science here. The central dogma of molecular biology is that DNA gets transcribed into RNA, okay? And then RNA gets translated into protein. This is just how life runs. Why, why does this matter? Well, DNA, for the purposes of this discussion, DNA is a long-lived information storage device. Okay, what you were born with, you're gonna die with and pass on to your kids. DNA lasts for hundreds of thousands of years um, and it can last for generations if you pass it on to your kids, right? So alterations to the DNA, they stick around. RNA by its nature is temporary. It doesn't last. And that feature of RNA was part of the sales pitch for the vaccine. The pseudouridine was supposed to make the RNA last a little bit longer but still, it's a transient phenomenon. We're talking hours to days, okay? Um, and then proteins. Once proteins are made, they also don't last forever. They, are, they last for hours to days. But something that makes its way into DNA has the potential to last for a very long time, maybe a lifetime. So this is a picture of the sequencing read, that, uh, the sequencing run that I did uh, in the lab. 
um, from a couple of batches of the Pfizer vaccine. And all those little bitty lines here are the little tiny pieces of DNA that are in the vaccine. They don't belong there. They are not part of the sales pitch or the marketing campaign. And they're there. There's a lot of them. This little graph here in the middle is the size distribution that peaks around 100 base pairs, 120 base pairs. So the, the DNA pieces that are in the vaccine are short little pieces, 100, 120. There's some that are about 500 base pairs, a few that are even 5,000, but most of them are around 100 base pairs. Um, why is this important? Because the probability of a DNA piece of DNA integrating into the human genome is unrelated to its size. So your genome risk is just a function of how many particles there are. So it's like, you know, if you shoot a shotgun at a washboard, if you shoot a slug, you have some probability of hitting it. And if you shoot buckshot, you have a bigger probability of hitting it with some shot, right? This, all these little pieces of DNA that are in the vaccine are analogous to buckshot. Um, you have many, many thousands of opportunities to modify uh, a uh, cell of a vaccinated person. Um, the pieces are very small because during the process they chopped them up to try to make them go away, but they actually increased the hazard of genome modification in the process. That's how this got here. Um, in my view, uh, somebody should go about sequencing DNA samples from stem cells of people who are vaccinated and find out if this theoretical risk has happened or not. I think this is a real serious oversight, regulatory oversight that happened at the federal level, and somebody should force this to happen somewhere. Dr. Buckhoff, yes. if you allow, are you capable of doing that? Yeah, it's, we do that kind of thing. But in order for it to be trustworthy it, by the public, this has to be done by lots of people. Right? Okay. Um, I'll talk to you more about that later. Yeah, this is our, our deal. This is why I know this should have been done at the federal level. Okay. Um, so we took all these pieces of DNA and we used them to glue together what the source DNA must have been. This is kind of, again, this is our, what we do in the lab all the time. And, and all these little, little red and green lines here, these are all independent little pieces of DNA. Um, this must have had 100,000 pieces of DNA in this, this uh, sequencing run. And you can put them all back together and see what they came from is this circle over here. It's a plasmid that you can go shopping online to buy from Agilent. And it's clear that Pfizer uh, took this plasmid and then they cloned Spike into it. Um, and they used it for in a process called in vitro transcription translation, in vitro transcription, where you feed um, an RNA polymerase this plasmid and it makes a whole bunch of mRNA copies for you. Okay, and then you take this mRNA, you mix it with the, the lipid nanoparticle transfection reagent, and now you've got your mRNA vaccine, but they failed to get the DNA out before they did this. So these little pieces, they did, they did make some effort to chop it up, so all these little pieces of the plasma got packaged in with the RNA. That's clear as day what happened just from the forensics of looking at the DNA sequencing. Okay, a, a little bit of a regulatory note here. Um, the way you do RNA transcription, in vitro transcription reactions, you have to give it a DNA template, okay? And you can give it a DNA template that is just a synthetic piece of DNA that is only the instructions to make the RNA. And that's what was done 
for getting the um, emergency use authorization and the clinical trial. It's called Process 1, if you look up that kind of stuff. Um, they made a PCR product of just the bits that they wanted, and then they did the in vitro transcription, made a bunch of RNA of that. There was no plasma DNA to contaminate the stuff that was used for the trial. But that, that making that PCR product doesn't scale the way that was necessary to vaccinate the whole world. So a cheaper way to scale up the production of this template is to clone that PCR product into this plasmid vector, put the plasmid vector into bacteria, and then you can grow up big vats of the bacteria. They make a lot of the plasmid DNA for you. Then you use that plasmid DNA as the template to drive this transcription reaction to make your RNA. Um, and that's where how the contamination ended up in the production batches, even though it was not in the stuff that was used for the authorization trials. So I know it's a little bit of nerdy science, but it has regulatory implications for, for you guys. <clears throat> um, we can we can measure the quantity of this stuff pretty easy in the lab. This is we're we're good at doing this kind of stuff. This is the same. We made a little PC. A colleague of mine at at MIT made you know from who who used to work for the the Broad Institute at MIT. He he made a little uh, PCR test and we cloned it here. This is similar to the PCR test that you all took for the spit test. Okay, same same idea and same expertise behind it. And we can quantify exactly how much of this stuff is in a vaccine or any other tissue. And, you know, I estimate that there were about 2 billion copies of the one piece that we're looking for in every dose. And if you look back at that map I showed you where it's all these little, the, the little piece that we're looking for is just that little bit right there, okay? But if you see 2 billion copies of this, there's about 200 billion of everything else. So what this means is that there's probably about 200 billion pieces of this plasma DNA in, in each dose of the vaccine. And it's encapsulated in this lipid nanoparticle, so it's ready to be delivered inside the cell. Okay, this is a bad idea. My conclusions from this, um, we should check a bunch of people. Ah. My conclusions from this are I should learn how to run PowerPoint. Um, we should check a bunch of vaccinated people getting tissue samples, especially if we focus on harmed people, but that's not necessary. We could also just focus on regular unharmed people and see if this plasma DNA is integrating into the genomes of any of their stem cells it leaves a calling card that is there. One of the reasons why I'm focusing on this is because it's kind of different from a lot of the other imagined harms where you can't really prove it. You can be suspicious because of the timing, but you can't really prove it. This one, you can prove it because it leaves a calling card. Okay. Um, you find it in the stem cells of harmed people. It's equivalent to finding a certain type of lid in someone who is now dead. It's pretty reasonable to assume that that's what caused it. Uh, the royal we, meaning you guys, should insist that the FDA force Pfizer to get the DNA out of the booster and all future versions of this vaccine. I'm a real fan of this platform, okay? I think it has the potential to treat cancers. 
I really believe that this platform is revolutionary and in your lifetime there will be mRNA vaccines against antigens in your unique cancer. Okay, and but they got to get this problem fixed. Okay, and I and I right now I think the financial incentives are too great to just keep on rolling with it, and it's going to take some encouragement to get it out. The regulation that allowed this DNA to be there in the first place. I don't think that this the amounts there actually exceed the regulation limits. In some batches, it may. In in the Two batches that I looked at, one of them it was just under the limit and one it was just over the limit. My colleague in Boston has looked at a fair number of other batches and there's a handful that are super high and there's a handful that are super low. But the fact that there is a regulatory threshold for amount of DNA allowed in a vaccine is a throwback to an era when we were talking about vaccines that were like a recombinant protein that you are a dead virus, you know, attenuated virus produced in, in CHO cells or something like that. And the DNA that might be in it is naked DNA. And you might have a little bit in the vaccine. That's not a problem because naked DNA gets chewed up immediately upon vaccination and there's no real mechanism for it to get inside the cells. They inappropriately applied that regulatory limit to this new kind of vaccine where everything is encapsulated in this lipid nanoparticle. It's basically packaged in a synthetic virus able to dump its contents into a cell. So I'm thinking Hanlon's razor here. Okay. I don't think there was anything nefarious here. I think it was just kind of a dumb oversight and it's going to take, because the financial incentives are so great to just, you know, sweep it under the rug and the career incentives of people that approve this are going to be, oh, there's nothing wrong here. You know, it's going to take some encouragement to make people prove that it's okay. But I really believe this was an inappropriate application of an old school regulation to a new kind of vaccine. And who knows, maybe we'll check a bunch of people and we'll find out for sure that this is indeed not a problem. And that will do the public good if we prove that. But we've had public health authorities um, acknowledge that, yes, the COVID vaccines can cause myocarditis. They can cause blood clots. After all, AstraZeneca and J&J COVID-19 vaccines were taken off the market for blood clots. Uh, and so there's been some acknowledgement of these types of vaccine injuries. Now, of course, where they lie to us about them is that they tell us that these kinds of injuries are rare. And in the case of myocarditis, they say they're mild. That, you know, the young men who come down with these myocarditis cases, that uh, it, it's mild and that it resolves uh, on its own. And we see that that's not true, that we see young people collapsing uh, with sudden cardiac arrests. Uh, they're collapsing in school, on the field. Uh, they're collapsing playing basketball, football. Uh, some of them are dying in their sleep. And so, of course, that's all being denied by the health authorities. But at least there's an admission that the COVID vaccines can cause myocarditis and blood clots. That's not the case with the cancers. Uh, and the cancers that I've seen after COVID vaccination are very different from anything I've ever seen in my career. And I've diagnosed tens of thousands of cancer cases in my career with CT, with PET-CT, with MRI. Um, and I've never seen cancers like this. These cancers, uh, they're showing up in young people, people in their 
teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, and they're showing up at end stage. So they usually show up uh, at stage three or, or stage four. So they, they're already very advanced. They grow very rapidly. And this is one feature that um, is fascinating because oncologists are not expecting these cancers to grow this quickly. And you'll see these testimonials when people usually they'll put uh, uh, they'll establish GoFundMe pages to help them with expenses, um, especially in the United States. You know, there's expenses associated with with cancer care. And they'll tell the stories that my oncologist was shocked by the rate that, you know, my tumor grew. Uh, or the oncologists will be preparing uh, a treatment plan for them, you know, surgery and potentially chemotherapy. And while they're preparing the treatment plan, the cancer's grown even further, much more quickly. And then the oncologists are scrambling to change their treatment plan to adjust for these very aggressively, rapidly growing cancers. Um, and usually the oncologists can't keep up with the cancer itself. Even if they start chemotherapy, it may work only partially or it may not work at all. So another feature of these cancers is that they seem to be resistant to conventional chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And that's another feature I noticed that was very unusual. And so these cancers have been called turbo cancers. It's not a medical term. It's not a term anyone will find in the literature. And I get thrown that, um, you know, by the naysayers that they'll say, well, look, uh, turbo cancer as a term doesn't exist in the literature. Well, yes, it's a brand new phenomenon and hasn't been named yet. Um, it is barely being even studied. Uh, in fact, you know, doctors are being threatened and they're being discouraged uh, from even acknowledging the existence of these turbo cancers after COVID vaccination. And so, you know, the article that you showed, I've written about 20 articles about turbo cancers so far. Um, it's based on anecdotes that I'm seeing at the ground level, individual stories. And, you know, when you see a, a young 30 something year old woman pre present with, you know, end st stage four breast cancer that claims her life within six months, that's something you're supposed to see maybe once or twice um, in your career. Um, it's, you know, these are supposed to be very rare stories. I'm not supposed to be able to collect dozens and dozens of these stories. Uh, and of course, you know, these individuals are all vaccinated. They've all been forced to take COVID vaccines to keep their jobs. And so I've published about doctors coming down with these turbo cancers, nurses. Um, that article was picked up by Vigilant Fox, um, and, you know, got a very wide viewership. Uh, recently, I focused on on teachers and, you know, there's there's other vaccine mandated professions where I'm seeing an explosion of these cases, police officers, firefighters, military and so on. And so when you say that, you, you know, you treated tens of thousands, you diagnosed tens of thousands of cancers that you haven't seen this, is it in particular, is it just the the rapid rate of the the formation of the cancer or i mean in combination with the the fact that they're not be you can't treat them in the same way that oftentimes as you would have a you know previously right with say chemo radiation you know perhaps gene therapy etc is so is it are those the key differences or is it something that even when you're looking at a scan that you're noticing that there's there's something different about this no it's it's the behavior it's the behavior of the tumor. So on, on imaging, you know, they, they might they might look the same as 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 you might expect, but it's the behavior of of the, the tumor cells themselves uh, that is very different. 
Um, and it's 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 the rapid rate of growth. Also, the fact that they're they're they tend, they're, they're presenting late, right? So so usually there's no symptoms, uh, and they're not getting picked up at stage one or stage two. They're almost always getting picked up at stage four, um, and even once they get picked up they're just you know they're growing rapidly and then they're spreading rapidly as well so you will find that even if it gets you know picked up and it's sort of localized by the time the oncologists are dealing with it it has spread to other organs um and it's also uh, there's a preponderance of certain types uh, of these turbo cancers and um in my anecdotal uh, evidence in terms of nurses, teachers, doctors who are coming down with these, lymphoma seems to be the, the most common one of these. You've got lymphoma, you've got some very aggressive leukemias. And the thing about the leukemias, uh, these are blood cancers uh, in the vaccinated, is the shocking feature there is that they can kill in a matter of days or hours. And even for leukemia, this is absolutely unprecedented. So you will have a young individual, I've, I've reported on several uh, young people you know 13 15 17 years old who will feel ill they'll go to emergency they'll have blood work done and they'll discover that this young person has a leukemia and they'll they'll be dead in a matter of hours uh and that is just an absolutely shocking uh scenario these have been reported in in the mainstream media of course the media will never make a link to the vaccination status they'll never mention the vaccination status you know we often have to try to find that out ourselves uh, so lymphomas and leukemias, um, very aggressive, behave unlike um, we've seen before the COVID-19 vaccines. And then you've also got the solid tumors. And the main ones there are breast cancers, colon cancers, and as well, lung as well. And the breast cancers, again, behaving unlike anything I've ever seen. I've dealt with a lot of breast cancer in my career. I've never seen breast cancer behaving like this. said earlier nefarious you felt like this was more nefarious than dr burkholder in what sense are you saying that the sv40 sequences they should not be there they don't need to be there to grow this into back to grow this in bacteria i don't think it's an accident they could have chosen another plasmid that did not have the sv40 sequences if these sequences sit above an oncogene and and they're promiscuous that means they are likely to to integrate in places more likely than other genetic inserts, then they can cause cancer. Insertional mutagenesis anyway causes cancer. Uh, and that's the risk. That's why gene therapies were not brought to market for so many years, because there was a risk of causing cancer from insertional mutagenesis. We never needed these vaccines. We had treatments that worked. Uh, one of our doctors here is gonna tell you about that, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, I can tell you as a toxicologist, they are not toxic. They're, they're some of the safest drugs you can use. I, there's no reason once the FDA found out about this contamination, okay? And we looked to see endotoxin levels but they've got them all redacted. Why would you redact them if you were trying to be transparent? Why would you hold the data for 75 years, all of the clinical data, for 75 years from these if you were trying to be transparent? Tell me why. There is something very unusual going on here.
that is being done differently than it's ever been done before. We don't give experimental products to pregnant women. We don't give experimental products to babies that have a death profile like this. It's not done. It's never been done before. Please protect your citizens. Please, I am begging you to protect your citizens. We've got to get one state to stand up and do the right thing. Do whatever you can so that other states will follow. I'm sorry. Well, thank you, Dr. Uh, Lindsay. Any questions? Holly? Seven thousand people in the study in Israel, just so you know, that showed that the double vax were 27 times more likely to get reinfected. So it's not the vaccine, even if we just talk about that, is not stopping infection, it's not stopping transmission. If you look at the studies in England, in Scotland, in the northern countries in Europe where they get real data, that they're actually the triple vaccinated are the most likely to die. So bottom line is that we, as we go forward, the natural immunity is long, broad, and durable. And I don't know if he mentioned it, but we have SARS-CoV-1 patients who still had immunity 18 years later. Let that sink in. 18 years later, we still had immunity from SARS-CoV-1 to SARS-CoV-2. This is long, broad, durable immunity. So what I want to say in closing is natural immunity should be considered legally to be at least equal to vaccinated immunity, and immunity is likely lifelong. Thank you. Seven thousand people in the study in Israel, just so you know. What is climate change? I mean, I think the question that the young lady asked over here is very valid. Young people are highly intelligent, but I wonder whether they're being told, or which they're entitled to, all the facts in relation to this. Oh my when I ask... <laughs> Well, just about, Alice, you, you've been speaking for most of the night. When I, when, when I, when I asked Tanya Plibersek, was, the Deputy Leader of the Labor Party and the potential Deputy Prime Minister, was carbon dioxide the big issue in relation to climate change? And she said yes. I then said, well, that being the case, what percentage of the atmosphere is made up of carbon dioxide? What is causing climate change? Is it carbon dioxide? Uh Yes, um, carbon dioxide pollution is a major contributor. Okay, so can I ask you, this is not a, a trick question, what percentage of the Earth's air is carbon dioxide? Oh, I don't know. And I say, hang on, you don't know what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and yet you're prepared to stand the economy on its head to address a problem, the detail of which you don't know. So when I then explain that the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, Alice, is how much? Reserve Alice? How much of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? To answer Alice? the question, Scott Morrison has said he believes in climate much? change Alice, and that much? he wants to do something about Alice, it. Alice, how much carbon dioxide is the problem? How much carbon dioxide is there in the atmosphere? I'm not a scientist. I don't oh. know. I'm a well, hang on. If you're going to argue the case, you ought to know. It's 0.04 of a percent. And of that 0.04 of a percent, human beings around the world create 3%. And of that 3%, Australia creates 1.3%. But if carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere, and human beings are responsible for 3% of that 0.04%, and Australia is responsible for 1.3% of the 3% of the 0.04%, it's like saying there's a granule of sugar 
on the Harbour Bridge. Clean the bridge up, it's dirty. Surely if a political party doesn't know the quantum of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, what the hell are we standing the economy on its head for? Demonising coal-fired power, driving everyone into renewable energy, which is not available, not reliable and not affordable, plonking us in electric cars, giving us nearly the dearest electricity in the world when we're rich in energy resources, exporting coal so that China and India and Japan can have cheap electricity, and we sit here swallowing this ideological rubbish, putting industry at risk, jobs at risk, and burying the economy. Death or too late, tearing me apart.